Hello and welcome back to the IPA's Looking Forward, a weekly podcast of debate and discussion about politics and ideas. This week, coronavirus has mutated again. It's gone from being a health issue to a political issue and now an economic issue. So what is to be done? Meanwhile, the panic over plastics has reached the Prime Minister as we unpack the vision of a circular economy. And of course, we'll catch up with the latest on the ABC's fight against the IPA's search for truth. Time now to introduce our panellists. I'm Scott Hargraves, editor of the IPA Review. Over here is Chris Berg from the RMIT University. Good morning, Scott. Good to have you. On my left is Dara McDonald, Research Fellow at the IPA. Great to be here again. Yeah, good to have you back. And of course, Evan Mulholland, our Director of Communications at the IPA. Thanks for having me. Uh, We'll be hearing a lot from Evan today. He's uh, uh, deeply involved in some of our core issues. But uh, certainly we'll start with the biggest, the one that's uh, having an impact all over the world, which is coronavirus. That's right. So as everybody who's tried to buy toilet paper in Australia in the last couple of days will know, coronavirus looks like it is going to go pandemic. Um, It is going to be widespread. Most um, uh, communities and most nations will be affected. There's been suggestion over the last uh, 20... So we're recording this on Tuesday and of course this is very fast moving. But there's been a suggestion over the last couple of days that it's been circulating in Washington State in the United States for at least for weeks or even six weeks or longer. So that suggests that the cat is well out of the bag. Um, I'm more, much more interested and we should talk about the political implications and ramifications first before we move on to the economic ones. So Scott Morrison has declared it um, inevitable and the health minister, Greg Hunt, has initiated a national emergency response plan. Um, in the US, the vice president, Mike Pence, has been given the lead on the response. This is a big test of our institutional capabilities from national institutions um, and national emergency responses and, of course, um, international institutions like the World Health Organization, isn't it, Dara? Yeah, and I think um, Australia has been quite in the forefront here and actually our ability to institute the travel ban early on, which was actually being criticised by a lot of the media, if you read the age and so on, they were criticising our swift reaction in implementing this travel ban. At the same time, the World Health Organization was saying, oh, don't worry about it, it's not a pandemic yet, it won't become a pandemic. Um, And really were playing politics with China and uh, trying to placate them instead of calling it what it is. And just today, I watched a video of the World Health Organization having a, giving another announcement saying, oh, well, we can't blame this on China. We can't um, use it as a scapegoat to um, uh, basically, you know, weaponize it to belittle, belittle people and so on, instead of worrying about the big issue, which is actually the, you know, that we have uh, a virus that is spreading quite rapidly and particularly with borderless countries like Italy has become quite significant. Yeah, if yeah. you don't if you don't want to if if you object to the issue being politicized then focus on the actual yeah. health impacts. Yeah. Just do your job. Do your job, guys. Evan, how is how do you think institutions are responding and and we'll start with the wealth health that the World Health Organization, um, uh, which has been talking a lot of, about China's admirable in its view response to this. Yeah, I think it's proving that internationalist institutions are the ones that are to be trusted, uh, especially in the Australian political community. Uh, there's a sort of widely and increasingly held view that the World Health Organization um, can't be trusted uh, and that it cowers to political 
pressure to actors like China. And um, Dara was right, Mar- Morrison and the Morrison government and Greg Hunt were criticised for implementing the China ban against the um, WHO advice. Uh, but uh, looking back a couple of weeks later, they're actually looking like they had a bit of foresight in that decision. And um, it, it's much better for actors you know, actors like Australia to trust their domestic institutions uh, and medical experts than than looking internationally. But forecasting forward a bit, how do you think domestic institutions will will respond? Obviously, this um, uh, this pandemic, um, uh, should it arrive, will not be severe in a percentage of fatalities, but it'll put a great deal of strain on the healthcare system and on a lot of elderly communities, um, uh, people with existing medical conditions. It, it, it will be quite harmful. How do you project out and how do you see Australian institutions and the Australian government responding? Obviously, uh, Australian institutions and local institutions will uh, be under strain, but um, you, you, in a sense, have to trust the medical experts and the, um, the planning that's going on at the moment uh, to make sure that um, this thing is contained to make sure that people are being looked after properly and to make sure that what happens next, um, you know, the, the people's health and stopping the spread of this virus would be at the forefront. Are you, Dara, are you worried that we're currently in an age of um, uh, anti-elite sentiment, even anti-expert sentiment, and that has given us, quite rightly, I think, given us this populism surge? Are you worried that some of the this is a pandemic in the middle of a populist era? What does that mean for the capacity of state institutions to respond to to external crises like this? I think I think the you know this this idea of populism is more of a political populism in the sense that we want to um, take various piecemeal things from various ideologies as opposed to and as opposed to follow something down the line. Um, I, th- I think when it comes to anti-elitism, we're more, I think the the um, the push is more towards kind of the uh, intellectual elite in the sense of, you know, the, you know, uh, commentators and intellectuals in terms of like academics and so on, as opposed to people that are, you know, boots on the ground dealing with, you know, crises like, the coronavirus that we see here. So I think I think the anti-elitism is not going to be directed towards the people that are actually out there doing something as opposed to people that are just lecturing. But, but we also have huge failures in trust in both institutions and some um, uh, of the political class are also fostering more of that um, lack of trust in those institutions. That's a problem though, isn't it? Or... Um, it, it, it depends on how it manifests. I guess there's a there's a healthy scepticism and there's a not so healthy scepticism, and it, it, it remains to be seen how it's going to manifest. In a sense, I think it's probably more interesting to look how um, China's institutions are going to deal with this because it is very much in the sense of uh, a strong man in, uh, projection that Xi Jinping has been projecting, and this is actually kind of going to taint his taint his uh, reputation in that respect. Well, and that's the, that the China's approach of the strongman has been adopted by South Australia, turns out as well. Mm-hmm. South Australia um, has introduced new laws that will allow for the detention of individuals suspected of being ill on public health grounds. Um, it seems like we're in the middle of a containment strategy here. I guess the interesting thing will be, will happen, what, what happens once we get to a mitigation strategy, once we 
accept that the virus is here. I think what your your question is a very um, is a very good one. I think. Thank you. Chris. Th- no, I appreciate that. Scott. I, I I'm, don't. You know, I'm practicing being an interviewer. I do sometimes think that on on the podcast without actually saying it out loud. I, so I, I, I appreciate because that. Because we we can have this conversation after we. Because the instant. Because <laughs> the. Uh, I'll buy you a drink. <laughs> that's right. You know, fifty three episodes and finally he says good question. Um, because. The institutions that be, that are being tested are not necessarily the the ones that have health in their title. It's not necessarily whether or not the chief medical officer um, uh, is or isn't doing a good job. These are the institutions of, of society that we're testing here. It's how people relate to each other. Even uh, you, you made a, um, a passing reference to uh, the raids on supermarkets that are going on all over Australia. And, um, <laughs> This may be very um, stupid of me, but I have not engaged in this practice because I have more faith in the market and, and the spontaneous order and the ability of our, our logistic systems to, to rise to the occasion. And provided there's no price controls, of course, and we don't, have, uh, we don't empower party operatives to go around accusing people of hoarding. And, and similarly, you know, inst- like that example from South Australia, the, the institutions of how we balance liberty against say, the public need um, to isolate individuals. I mean, it seems to me to, to be a phantom of someone who, who's suspected of having the virus but who doesn't want to be treated for it. I mean, you know, when yeah, I just read this morning that the Attorney-General Christian Porter uh, didn't rule out using the Biosecurity Act to detain people who refuse to have be tested for coronavirus on entry to Australia, so... Yeah, mm. uh, yeah, and uh, but I think uh, so. I've been thinking about this hoarding thing um, because, embarrassingly enough, I did go to Costco before the the um, the masses did uh, earlier this week. Um, or sorry, earlier last week. Uh, if you um, wanted to hoard and you decided to do it on the weekend, then you don't you don't really understand the culture of hoarding very well, in my view. But um, uh, how, but how, I think how many how many how many tins do you have buried under your house? I don't actually have that many tins. So so this is uh, this is the argument for hoarding. I'll give you that um so the con- there's twofold concern there's first of all the obvious one which is what if you're quarantined so what if you're told you you have to go and you don't want to go out to you, you have to stay at home for two weeks and you don't have to go to a shop but i think the downside risk is actually not that the virus gets out of control and um blood runs through the streets the downside risk is policy choices and i am not of a um, sufficiently trusting view about how the government responds to um, uh, decline to just have a have a few tins of food in my house, and it's not a lot of stuff that I've bought, but I just I'm I'm worried mostly about policy decisions. The market I think will will do really really well. So if you have a look at what's happened in Wuhan, which is the Chinese city where it um, uh, where it started or where it um, uh, became most epidemic, um, they're still operating things like Deliveroo and I, I don't think they have Uber Eats, but equivalent services. So those still operate in um, in Wuhan. So you'll still be able to get delivery um, because the market will provide. But what I am concerned about is what, what happens if a government, um, whether it's a local government, a state government, makes a unusual decision that makes it just inconvenient for us to go to the supermarket or inconvenient or more slightly more expensive to get, you know, Coles or Woolworths delivery. That's what people, I think, are hoarding against, not zombies in the street. Oh, that's good to know. Uh, and, of course, well, that, that's the potential for regulations, which at the micro level... But then, of course, we've, we've, I'm very concerned about the response at the macro level, which is um, the equation seems to be 
that coronavirus is the thing that's going to tip us into a, a much anticipated recession. Mm-hmm. And it, it may well. I, th- I think half a percentage point has been knocked off our anticipated um, growth rate. But of course, the very concerning thing about that is they're, they're reaching into the, the very same bucket of solutions that's completely failed over the past 20 years, um, be it you know even lower interest rates, quantitative easing, fiscal stimulus, throw more money at um, uh, government construction pro- projects with all the waste and inefficiency that involves and so on and so forth. That's that's the bit that concerns me. It's like Philip Lowe is going to get his, his the rate cut that he's been dreaming of, of giving. Well, that's right. As we, as we talk, the RBA is meeting and they're almost certain to cut interest rates um, today. As I said, we're recording on Tuesday. But lower rates, um, there's no reason to believe lower rates will do anything. I, I understand why the RBA would use lower rates because it's the tool that they have in their toolkit. Um, uh, because what we're looking at is not a demand shock. So let, let's all imagine that we are traditional Keynesians and we, are con- um, and we think about the world that way. We, let's imagine we even support fiscal stimulus. In this case, you don't have a demand shock that you're trying to stimulate demand for. We have a supply shock. So the big thing that's changed um, at the result of the coronavirus is damage to supply chains, um, damage to production in 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 china you know they've shut down the chinese economy for nearly two months now um we're facing low productivity if people are um if people have to stay home from work so offices and businesses and factories will be operating under their usual staff um uh, quote and that is a supply shock there is nothing that a interest rate cut will do about that now there might be demand problems you could imagine that there'll be fewer public events there'll be less people going out to restaurants and so forth but that to my mind is secondary to the fact that you know our our productive capacity may be less for the next few months um how do you deal with that from a policy perspective that's that's really really hard uh, but i don't see any governments actually applying the creative intelligence <laughs> To um, to that problem, that uh, rather than as you say, they're just looking for the um, old traditional fiscal stimulus or monetary stimulus packages. Whereas it could be an opportunity for the Morrison government to actually, you know, put reform back on the table. I mean, if yeah. if, if you're really worried about the it, economy, exactly, exactly. This is this is the perfect opportunity to reform. It's the perfect opportunity to cut red tape and you know dramatically cut the size of government. Uh, the coalition government or the Liberal Party as a party for the last 10 years has been arguing Labor's response to the GFC uh, and its spending as a result of that uh, was destructive. It was uh, bad. It, it, you know, it, it, it has been their entire economic argument um, for, for 10 years. For the gov- Morrison government to now turn around and possibly I- I introduce more s- stimulus into the economy would be a shocking indictment on its own economic narrative. It needs to it needs to go to way of its old economic theory uh, and and actually do things that'll that'll um, you know reduce the size of government and boost economic growth. This gives me an opportunity to argue about the GFC, which I really will take at any moment because I, the the coalition never learned the lesson of the GFC properly, in my view. So their criticism of the fiscal stimulus under Malcolm Turnbull, under Tony Abbott, was only ever that it was too much, not that it was a bad idea. They did the um, the criticism against uh, Kevin Rudd was they he just overdid it. 
Um, he, he went too wild. He, there was some waste, for instance. You know, there was um, the school halls was wasteful. Yeah. The thousand dollar checks was wasteful. But they never criticised the idea of fiscal stimulus, and they never understood the underlying economics of fiscal stimulus. Um, there are all these quotes from uh, from the time, which I've been slowly collecting in the in the back of my um in the back of my pocket on you know Tony Abbott saying like oh of course we support fiscal stimulus but there's just you know we don't want to go too far and Kevin Rudd is going too far reckless like the Labor Party is always so reckless but they never actually criticise that so it would not surprise me in the slightest that the government's response listening to Treasury will just be yeah let's 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 send out a few more checks let's um uh, in, in, let let's have a, a a few more spending policies let's um, build some more infrastructure or something like that. Shovel-ready infrastructure. Yeah, and the other one I've been looking at, uh, the business groups have been campaigning for a while for a um, uh, an investment allowance, uh, which is a poor substitute for what Trump did in America with the essentially 100% depreciation, instant asset write-off, coupled with corporate tax cuts. And um, it, it only takes a few minutes on the web, <laughs> as in I did this this morning, um, <laughs> I, I, I was, you know, it was interesting to find that, of course, the uh, notion of the investment allowance as an alternative to corporate, has been presented specifically as an alternative to corporate tax cuts by the Australia Institute, the Grattan Institute, the Labor Party, all the way along. It was, it was seen as um, if you want to stimulate investment through corporate tax cuts, we can do it more directly uh, through things like an investment allowance where you get to deduct um, certain capital charges like depreciation against your income, but the but the thing is, Trump did both, and look at the you know and and suddenly you know shifted the dial on economic growth you know to a number with a four in front of it, which was when you know Obama had famously said it was never going to ever get above three ever again. So this is the world we live in. So that the opportunities that the Morrison government has now to actually reach past the bucket that's in front of them to. The IPA's bucket of ideas. Where, where, have we got that here? Yeah, yeah. We, we've got the 20 ideas uh, for the election. Where did it go? I, I hope you're right, Scott, but my, <laughs> my concern is that um, the problems that we're facing, we would be able to adjust them if we'd already cut red tape significantly because the problem with red tape is that it locks businesses and economic activity into preset modes. It makes it hard to adjust what you're doing. It makes it hard to close down a warehouse here and build a warehouse there, depending on sudden mm. shocks to the economy. For, to my mind, that is in fact, quite apart from the burden that economic, uh, that, that red tape has on economic growth, to my mind, that's the biggest problem with red tape and over-regulation, is that it makes it hard to adjust to shocks. Hopefully out of this, we come with the lesson that um, if we want to deal with incredibly unpredictable economic shocks in the future, we need to have a much more flexible economy. A much more flexible economy is a much less regulated economy. $176 billion a year could be unleashed into the economy. Um, and it's, yeah, it's going on the, on the red tape point. You've had, you know, premiers like Daniel Andrews and Gladys Berejiklian and even Scott Morrison saying, oh, we're going to cut red tape in bushfire areas to make it easier for people. But what they're doing in that is admitting that red tape makes it easier for people. It boosts economies when you cut it. So what is the point of having it in the first place yeah. if, if you're only going to do it on, on certain examples? And, and it's not a huge amount of help after the fact. By the time they announce that they're going to cut red tape, then the businesses that they're trying to protect have already gone under. 
Yeah. Um, we, what we need to have is a more flexible economy that has less controls, less regulation and taxation, so that it can adapt when it needs to. And so it seems, though, that um, while we're talking about the need for a more flexible economy uh, with less red tape, uh, all the focus has been on the so-called circular economy. Um, and uh, even, even as this you know, unfolding uh, health and economic crisis has been underway, uh, all eyes in Canberra last night were on a plastics summit. Uh, with the Prime Minister launching... Including your eyes, I have to say. Yeah, well, boy, oh boy. Um, <laughs> I try and avoid things like this, but there was there was our Prime Minister addressing a plastic summit, um, talking about all these things, obligatory school children in the audience so that you could uh, talk about how much they care for the environment and all this kind of thing. Plastics are our future. So as, as tell us about that. the... And, and um, I know Evan has something to say on this, but Chris, tell us about the circular economy. Sure. So um, actually, no, uh, uh, sorry. Do you mind if I take over? I think let's talk about, let's talk about the rubbish bin thing because the rubbish bin thing yeah, sure. is indicative of so much of the poor quality Mm. thinking if we're going to if we're going to get market-based responses to um to things like recycling so uh victoria um uh and you know this is all the same story but victoria has announced that it would have a four bin recycling scheme by 2023 so four bins right now we have in victoria three bins we're going to move to four there's going to be a glass i've only got two well, but there's the green bin. There's the recycling bin, blue. Not you might not have much green not, waste. Not in there. the city of Yarra. Oh, okay, fair enough. <laughs> no, you, you, no trees there, fair you enough. You need to request a green waste bin if you have green waste. Well, there you go. We'll get to you in a moment, Evan. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for um, clarifying so, that. So there's, there will be a glass recycling bin, which will be purple, a food and garden organics bin, which is the green lid, which apparently... Um, uh, oh no! The the you know, so food and garden organics, which will have a green lid that Scott doesn't have. There's a plastic, metal, and paper recycling bin, which is will have a yellow lid, and a household waste bin, which will have a red lid. Evan, you have incredibly strong feelings about this. In in fact, famously strong feelings about this um why don't you take us through how your week was yeah so strong i uh resulted it resulted in me being the number one trending topic on twitter uh for the simple statement that hang, hang on josh can you give us a round of applause there thank you josh for the simple statement that i said this is a disgrace daniel andrews is constrict conscripting every single citizen to become an unpaid rubbish sorter uh, in requiring every Victorian to have four bins, um, so another bin to sort out your glass, um, and uh, what I, you know, went on to say in my op-ed and what my inbox, uh, IPA inbox, was full of people saying, uh, is that many Victorians just actually don't have enough room to store another bin. Um, you know, if you live in the inner city or if you live in a townhouse, where are you going to put four different? big bins uh, and uh, basically, um, you know, it, they introduced a, they're saying they're going to do a container deposit scheme as well, um, which in some respects negates the need for an extra bin also. Um, and there's many studies around the world to show the more that people have, are required to sort their recycling, the less recycling actually occurs. So I think this is uh, the wrong way to go about this, uh, rates will need to go up by at least 25%. Many councils have said they are basically going to be forced to go to fortnightly rubbish collections if they are to um, uh, have a fourth bin. 
And as a, if, if the outcome of this is meant to be an environmental one, that is an additional diesel-fueled, uh, gas-guzzling <laughs> uh, garbage yeah. truck going around the neighbourhood every week. There's a lot of research into um, the difference between – or the, the outcome difference between single-stream recycling, which is the one – bin recycling versus what they call multi-stream recycling. Um, again, like you, Scott, I've done some research um, uh, this morning and it is very, very clear precisely that, that single stream um, recycling involves much – it gets you much higher rates of recycling. It also, yeah. it also um, uh, you know, some people will put other things in the bin that shouldn't have been recycled as well but that and, – and then that puts more of a burden – on the recycling firm itself. But again, we shouldn't really overstate that problem because if you've seen how these recycling operations actually function, in a country like Australia, they are incredibly sophisticated at sorting and managing recycling. And if you want recycling to have an effect, if you want to maximise recycling, which presumably is what the councils want to do, then the single stream almost all the evidence suggests that's the most efficient approach. Dara, do you recycle? Yes, I guess. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I have the two bins at home, but now with the four bins, I don't know what I'm going to do with my, you know, wine bottles and then my cardboard and then blah, 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 blah. So, it will, you know, it will also, you know, take up room at home how many, you know, bins you have on your counter and how much um, baskets and so on that you need to, you know, Put in your house. Um, the other thing with this is that I mean, when I was in um, in Europe, and they have these like you know cash for container schemes, um, which are instituted by the um, by the supermarkets actually that you you go through, and because there's actually a good good amount of money that they give you, people just leave bottles all over the street, and then someone comes in and picks it up as like a organic recycling kind of um, system in the sense that. Uh, uh, you know, people spontaneous that, order. Spontaneous yeah. order, exactly. Um, so, where, where, they, where there are these market solutions, then the actual the um, the instituted from above uh, solutions are not really necessary. And it, similarly, with um, with kind of single use plastics, which is all the rage these days, um, that you if, where there is a, a market solution or a, 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 a um, non single use alternative that is actually good, people opt for that because obviously it's more economical to buy something once than buy something, you know, 20 times. So, you know, I mean, I, th I think it is quite a, you know, it's, it doesn't actually um, give the solution that people want it to give. Yeah, I, I, I challenge that notion though. Yeah. I, 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 my objection to all this recycling mania is, is more fundamental. You know, I, I, I challenge the notion uh, that there is this idea that you can use use something 20 times and it's better than uh, using one thing, um, you know, creating 20, 20 variants of that. I wrote once in uh, Flat White for the Spectator Australia about the whole point of banning plastic bags was just to show that they could, mm -hmm. that they have this power over you to, to make your life more miserable um, so that you have to turn up at the supermarket embarrassed because you don't have that stupid cloth bag. Uh, that you're meant to carry it around at all times and then you have to purchase another another damn plastic bag or at least you do in states where they've been officially banned. Um, and Sorry, on that, it reminds me of this fantastic article that was written in the Washington Post some years ago, I think, um, uh, titled 
sorry, actually one year ago, environmentalists make good movie villains because they actually want to make your real life worse. That's absolutely <laughs> true. That's absolutely true. And um, there's been some great work uh, from John Tierney who writes for the New York Times and is a contributing editor of the City Journal. We'll put this up in the links because um, he took uh, independently came to the same point and he, and he says that th you know, this is just a version of sumptuary laws where <laughs> you know, in the Middle Ages, you know, anyone who seemed to be enjoying life um, people would go and complain to the king and they would have to pass regulations to say, for God's sake, stop those people dressing in those nice clothes and eating all those fine foods and actually enjoying life. And um, this is very much what it's about. And and there's a the idea of the circular economy rests still on this utopian notion, but it, uh, you know, there must be a market for this. It's so obvious that if we can reuse something, somebody might use that. This is using energy to fight against entropy. There is a just a fundamental thing about using stuff. It degrades to a lower state. And so they're, they're, I saw in, in amongst Morrison stuff, they're going to build five factories worth $250 million to process and sort all this stuff. This is just dead weight economic loss. Mm. And, you know, green jobs, you know, it's a classic, you know, the very definition of green job is something that adds no economic value to society <laughs> whatsoever. And Morrison's right, this is going to create green jobs. Uh, a lot of the responses that I had were like, oh, well, IPA is libertarian. Don't you believe it's personal responsibility? There's nothing about personal responsibility about forcing people uh, to have an extra bin. And also, like, container deposit schemes bring out the worst of crony capitalism, which I'm absolutely <laughs> against. In New South Wales, the big beverage companies, Coca-Cola, Carlton United, etc., receive $30 million a year for doing what they already were doing. $30 million from the taxpayer. That is not a, a libertarian sort of thinking. Well, look, Scott Morrison announcing the national plastic strategy. Um, we have a national plastic strategy in the middle of the coronavirus crisis. Um, uh, made this argument, in fact. Um, he said that different countries have tried these strategies in different ways, but true to our principles, my government will not take a top-down tax and punish approach. We want to encourage and incentivize the best. We want to support recycled products to compete in the market. So we should briefly talk about the circular economy because I've been doing some work on this. So um, the circular economy, as you've, as you've pointed out, describes a theoretical economic system where um, there's zero waste, so everything gets reused, or at least that's the that's the limiting um, idea. Obviously, that um, the, they don't think that 100% stuff can be reused, but the idea is that rather than destroying stuff or just wasting it, then it'll be put back and recycled or, or melted down or what what have you. Um, now, this actually describes the way a lot of the way a lot of markets function already, and I've I've written a number of pieces about this in the past, which is the way the market actually independent and separate to any regulations, any government plans, actually incentivizes you to sell the stuff that you're not using because it's just cheaper or it's more profitable to sell stuff than than throw it away. Um, and the example I used was, um, and, and, and regular readers of the IPA for many years will be aware of this example, um, a, a what happens to a pig when a pig is um, slaughtered in a farm, eventually all the parts of that pig end up in things like um, train breaks, end up in um, uh, you know, ice cream, end up in, uh, in f foods and fibers all throughout the global supply chain. That is the market functioning. And that is a, um, a 
quasi-circular economy, or at least it's, mm-hmm. it is reusing stuff. And you're absolutely right. There's the entropy problem that things just get worse. But one of the things that also gets worse is we just know less about stuff over time. And the more we can provide better information about the products that we have, the more likely we're able to sell it rather than dump it. Now, that's not an argument for regulation. That's just an argument for markets to have more information to function better, and that's an entrepreneurial problem, not a not a policy or regulation problem. Absolutely, and and but it also shows how you got to get to the, the deeper issues here because um, the objection of the greenies to to pack now they have a fundamental objection to packaging. Isn't this terrible that in in the West um, we receive our foodstuffs in packaging and then that packaging is thrown away and this is seen as in, inherently wasteful in the developing world. What you have is they would use as much of the pig as they could, but then the rest is thrown away. So they don't, they don't, they don't they're not throwing away packaging, but they are throwing away yeah, heaps they, of stuff. Because, because, they, because it's just worse market infrastructure. It's harder exactly. to sell the stuff. Exactly. Um, in, in, rich company, in rich countries, there's just better, deeper markets. If they didn't have this damn mania about plastics, the issue goes away. There's nothing <laughs> wrong with landfill <laughs> or indeed burning stuff. Bring back the backyard incinerator, I'll say. Um, well, that, maybe that'll get me on Official, media. Official looking for. Well, one position. of the things that a lot of policymakers are looking at is the, the, these waste to energy plants that um, you know, burn up the rubbish and turn them into to energy to go back in the energy market. Yeah. Um, but they're getting protested as well because they release CO2. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we should have biodegradable bags, which also release CO2. So go figure. It mm. makes no sense whatsoever. So... But maybe that'll get us on the ABC. Let's talk about the ABC, Chris. <laughs> Let's talk about the ABC. I'm going to throw it to Evan again because... One, um, one of my brutal e- segments. Evan, again, it, and Evan, it is an honour to be on the podcast with you uh, today because you're one of Australia's most influential people this week. Um, <laughs> Evan, you, uh, uh, you you led the release of a, um, a IPA survey into how much people... Uh, was it trust the ABC? Why don't you take us through those results? Yeah, so we we asked Australians um, uh, to agree or dis- disagree with the statement the ABC does not represent the views of ordinary Australians. Um, only 32% of those people disagreed. 32% agreed with, with uh, the premise of, of the statement that we put out there and the rest neither agreed nor disagreed. So we think it, it is a damning indictment on the ABC that only 32% of its viewers uh, think it represents the views of uh, their views uh, but yet 100% of taxpayers are forced to fund it. So this got a run on, on news.com.au. Uh, it got quite an extensive run. And then as you can imagine, it was very quickly bounced around on Twitter and into the media and on Sky and et cetera. Um, and everybody's uh, like, this Evan Mulholland, he's back. <laughs> well, it was actually Gideon fronting a lot of those comments. Oh, so, okay, fair uh, enough. As, as my role as the RPA's media spinner, I was sort of doing behind-the-scenes <laughs> work. Um, but, but, you know, naturally and, and somewhat expectantly... You were expectingly, working Gideon like a puppet. Yes. <laughs> And somewhat expectantly, uh, ABC's Media Watch got quite interested uh, in in what we had to say uh, with our poll, and they asked a whole bunch of questions uh, on on and how the poll had been um, you know, done, and 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 why the question was not actually asked neutrally. We did ask the question in the ne- in the negative, um, and th- you know they didn't put my full response on air last night, but I actually said that you know uh, it, 
I reject the premise of the question that it's not neutral. Um, and asking it, asking to agree or disagree with the statement the ABC does rep- represent the views of ordinary Australians could also be seen as leaning and not yeah. neutral. Um, so I think that's pretty ridiculous. And he went on to say a whole bunch of other things, including that... Um, and, and he claimed that it was a push poll, which just suggests he has no idea what a push poll actually is. Exactly, exactly. And and he just, just weeks ago, he uh, promoted a poll... Uh, by the Australia Institute to to back up his argument on climate change and said, you know, oh, well, 66% of Australians think that uh, because of the tragic recent bushfires, uh, <laughs> climate change action has reached a tipping point and we need to take further action. Um, so he was quoting leaded, leading loaded polls and he also didn't give an attribution of political affiliation to the Australia Institute like he calls the IPA you know free market um, a libertarian goes on about our donors and then he uh, for the Australian Institute he just says the Australian Institute even though it was just you know I think three or four years ago Media Watch was saying you must declare the political leanings of think tanks for, for not the, this not this case for the benefit of listeners could you just take us through the distinction between what what, what do we mean by a leading poll or a push poll Well, leading polls could give you a certain uh, scene setting. Uh, So it could ask you a a series of questions saying, you know, do you agree that the bushfires uh, have caused, uh, have had a devastating impact on Australia? Hmm. Um, You know, climate change, I think one of the questions from the Australia Institute is that, you know, is climate change not linked to bushfires? Is, um, uh, uh, has climate change action reached a tipping point? Um, are we respond? Uh, is Australia's you know emissions is responsible for the bushfires? Things like that, and or you know, I think one of the questions You're sort of that, led down a path. Yeah, you are you are led down a path, and you, and you are steered in your way of and, thinking. And a push poll is even more than that. It's it's when you're given a piece of information that you don't know. So it might be something like candidate um, Bob has uh, been accused of murdering someone. Mm. Do you, will this affect how you think about candidate Correct. Bob? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Correct. Um, so, so uh, anyway, so that's that's technicalities of, of polling. So, uh, how do you how do you look at the results of this? Uh, what what do you think we've we've learned about the ABC? I just think that you know, in an, in an era of um, diversification of media, where um, media markets are increasingly sparse and going towards its loyal viewership. That seems to be over the past decade or so what the ABC has been doing. They've been going towards their loyal left-wing base and you can tell from its its you know, news outfits and its opinion shows what it chooses to decide, run on four corners and things like that, that it, it has decided to go for a loyal base. Now, that is completely fine if you're The Guardian or if you're another private news media network. It's well within any organisation's right to be to be biased or have a leaning, but not when it's taxpayer funded. We all, 100% of taxpayers are forced to fund the ABC in what's becoming an increasingly narrow point of view. But Dara, isn't there a, to play devil's advocate, should the ABC, should we be paying the ABC to represent mainstream views, given that we have a market system that actually provides a great deal of mainstream view provision. So if the commercial networks are responding to what most Australians want to see, then why would we want the ABC to be replicating that themselves? Well, I mean, it, it depends on whether they're taxpayer funded or not. I mean, it's well within, if they if they want to go down that niche market, then, um, you know, of course that's, that's within their rights if they're as, um, 
Evan was saying, if they're not taxpayer funded. But at the moment, because the the way is structured, and it is actually meant to be um, fair and impartial, and also, you know, a national network, so to speak. Um, then in that instance, it does become a sticking point that it isn't representing Australian views. Um, the other thing which I, I was interested in the poll is that so many people um, said, I don't know, to the question. And I think if you look at the statistics in, in um, BBC, you know, for the BBC in the UK, that more and more young people are actually not tuning into the BBC or the ABC for that instance, because, you know, there's now a whole bunch of, you know, Netflix and... Disney Plus and all these services that are popping up, which is even if it does um, align with your views, you're still not watching it because there's alternative services in the market that you know does represent your views. So, yeah, this has been a, this has been a tension for the ABC basically since its inception. Yeah. Which is the question is: Is the ABC there to fill a gap that the market won't provide? And some, um, uh, particularly if you if you follow Twitter and you follow these arguments, a lot of people will argue, well, you know, of course, the Murdoch press is giving us all the right wing news that we can handle. We need the ABC to provide the left wing news. Now, I actually think that's slightly more coherent as a reason to have a public broadcaster or so, a reason to have a government policy rather than the idea that we should have the ABC precisely replicate what the commercial broadcasters do because um, it's supposed to speak to all Australians. In that case, why have it at all? Yeah, I also think there's a fundamental tension just with Media Watch itself. Um, uh, lest I you know, be accused of surreptitiously shooting the messenger, I'm just going to say it out loud, I, I'm going to shoot the messenger. I think I, <laughs> you, you can't hold yourself out as being this impartial news organisation which is, you know, trusted by Australians, which which um, covers issues dispassionately and, um, you know, have, have this guy, you know, very much in the in the mode of, you know, Leola who created the Jesuits. They were called the shock troops of the counter-reformation. I feel like they're sent out by the ABC every week to hunt down its critics and <laughs> hold them um, and, and, uh, and feed, feed the, the social media beast. I mean, you know, what have they got, 15 or 16 staff members on this show and whatever whatever for mission... 15 minutes. Yeah, for 15 minutes. And whatever, whatever mission it had when it began all those years ago... It's now just there to campaign on climate change, to hunt down its critics, to have a go at the Jennifer Marahassis and the Evan Mulhollands of the world. And very, very rarely is are they actually ever calling out anything to do with the media actually misreporting something, actually breaking journalistic ethics, anything like that. Is like no, somebody said something with which which contradicts the official ABC view of the world and we're going to go after them. I'll also point out that Media Watch is fundamentally anachronistic by this stage. The idea that there's a 15-minute show once a week to talk about what's happening <laughs> in the media is just it's always hilariously behind the schedule yeah, yeah, yeah. um there's more than enough criticism of the media in real time mm. on the internet on um uh or, or, or on just platform after platform the idea that the australia's media environment is waiting for media yeah, watch yeah, to yeah. get around to this week's episode is just obviously absurd yeah, and there are a lot of proposals being put out there and I can understand the ABC's argument and point of view that, you know, because of its its work covering the bushfires, um, it has limited resources and therefore needs the uh, funding freeze uh, withdrawn. Um, I can understand that argument. We actually floated the argument uh, last week that, 
you know, that under a privatised ABC, if the government's intention was to have an emergency broadcaster, that specific function could be tendered out to existing commercial networks, who I'm sure will be more than happy to uh, to do that. But I know, um, you know, Chris, you, you yourself uh, with Sinclair Davidson wrote uh, a very good book on, on, on options we, we for privatising yes. the ABC. Just showing it up again to the audience who have obviously seen it before. Yeah. Um, no, that, that's absolutely right. So uh, when we have these arguments, um, people will make these claims, well, but what about the emergency broadcasting service, but what about this, this, that, and the other? And the emergency broadcasting is actually a really important thing, and Australia would be significantly worse off um, without a serious emergency broadcasting um, system and even a television or radio network um, with a dedicated emergency broadcasting role. And to, to um, fly back to some of the conversations we were having a few weeks ago, you know, in an era where we should be thinking about adaptation to, to climate change, whether it's human-induced or not, we should be thinking about that sort of thing. But that is obviously you do not need a $1 billion media behemoth to do that, and as you say, you can easily tender it out. There's just lots of other mechanisms to get what you want. You can give tax subsidies for um, for commercial broadcasters to do that. You could just regulate the commercial broadcasters. You could say, well, every once in a while, we'll take over your network. Now, that will still be cheaper. That will still be less economically and politically harmful than having this $1.1 billion public S- Similar thing happened when um, the government flogged off Telstra. They, they had specific service obligations that it had to meet a market in regional Australia. Yeah, no, that, that's absolutely right. We've got lots of policy um, weapons on the table. Uh, yeah. The idea that we need to run a non-stop, multi-channel digital media empire is obviously absurd. We have come to that section of the show where we talk books and culture and we've actually got a terrific selection today, um, a movie, a couple of books and a podcast. Um, Chris, would you like to take us away? I'd love to, Scott. Thank you. So um, I read uh, a book called The Lost History of Liberalism from Ancient Rome to the 21st Century by Helen Rosenblatt. People have been telling me to read this for some years and I embarrassingly only got around to it now. It was released in 2018 but has now quite a widespread um, group of admirers. So this is um, history of liberalism, the word. Um, uh, how it's been adopted, what are the, um, uh, is there a coherent liberalism that travels from, you know, the, the, uh, the classical world to the 21st century? And I think there's, there's a lot of takeouts here. And the book is both strong and weak for having focused on the word rather than the structure of ideas. It's, it looks at the word and then figures out the ideas that go around that word rather than the set of ideas. Um, uh, match to any other denomination. So it's not a history of classical liberalism. It's not a history of left liberalism. It's a history of the word liberalism. But the thing that I really took out of it in the context of the many discussions that we've had on this podcast and are being had um, in right of centre um, political communities at the moment is that liberalism is not just the idea that um, we don't care about what people do. In fact, liberalism as it was developed in the classical era of the era of John Locke of Edmund Burke was always about there's a liberal virtue, there are liberal 
ethics. There's a liberal. Um, th- there, there's a positive liberal story. To be a liberal means to be open-minded, to care about community, to care about family. It means a lot more of just well. Let's let's just get the state out of the way. There is a liberal worldview now. Um, that that's very appealing to me. I'm a big follower of Deirdre McCloskey's vision of sort of um, uh, the liberal ethic or um, liberalism as a, uh, a as a virtue system. And it tells me that when liberals, classical liberals, free marketeers, libertarians, are trying to get the state out of our lives, we're actually trying to empower simultaneously civil society, family, community, voluntary organisations, because that's the positive liberal agenda or the positive classical liberal agenda. Sorry, the book does that or it didn't do that? No, no, so the book goes, the book is very good at um, unveiling or bringing out in these classical liberal writers um, their positive vision of what a liberal society looks like. Because that's a rebuttal not so much against the left but against the... Uh, capital C conservative the, the claim that liberalism is a sort of empty vessel, it's relying on some uh, anarchic spontaneous order that may or may not produce um, uh, good outcomes. Precisely. And yeah. so one of my favourite liberal historical figures is Benjamin Constant. He was a, um, uh, a, a French liberal during the back end of the French Revolution and under Napoleonic France. And and his writings and um, the writings of many of his French... So it, well, this book is very strong on, on the French liberal, liberal movement, which is an underrated um, uh, aspect of liberalism because we tend to focus on the English um, uh, and, and Scots, of course. Um, but the Benjamin Constant's vision of a, a liberal society was very much a community-minded... Um, uh, a caring for each other just he he saw rightly in my mind that the state was could only harm that worldview could only harm that set of virtue that liberal ethic that sounds like a good one so we'll link to that in the show notes and um dara i see that the title of your book has the word liberals in it, but yes, perhaps right. not in Less the positive. Not, not in the same sense. So <laughs> no, you might I'm, you might need to walk us through I that. I read um, "Unveiled: How Western Liberals Empower Radical Islam" by Yasmin Muhammad, and she's doing a speaking tour in Australia in two weeks. So I thought I would start reading the book in preparation from here to hearing her speak. Unfortunately, or fortunately, rather, um, my beginning reading the book also ended with me reading the book in that I read it in one sitting because it was so such a page turner her yeah. life is totally um totally unique to her but also unfortunately not unique to lots of people that are living in in the um the shadow of radical islam um so yeah it, it, for me it was just a interesting in the sense that you know we we spend a lot of time in the ipa talking about um you know, freedom of expression and equality before the law. And this is what happens when, you know, these principles are not uphold. This is what happens when um, when we dilute the principles of, you know, freedom and don't apply it to all people, then we end up in the situation where those, particularly the people that really need to rely on those principles that are downtrodden don't have them when it's such desperate, you know, desperately needed. Um, there's a few instances in the book where she's basically left in a, um, an abusive household because the judge doesn't want to rule to take her out because that would be, you know, cultural imperialism 
and we're living in a society of cultural relativism. Um, so yeah, it was, it's a very interesting book, and it is um, yeah, it's very a very powerful. Yeah, and, I must yeah. admit, I don't, I'm not familiar with the author. And where did where where did she grow up? Where, which she countries? Grew up, she grew up in Canada. Oh, where does she live now, for that matter? She yeah. lives in Canada now, but she grew up in Canada um, to a very radical family. Um, and at one point, she is basically arranged to be married off to a guy that ends up to be a member of Al Qaeda, um, and she escapes from that um, situation. But the problem is, is that lots of the lots of the Liberals in this instance is referred to as like the left, left wing um, people in the country that are basically um, instead of applying the same principles and treating her as a you know an equal, um, they they use tolerance as a as a um, to batter down basically. This is a, an example of um, bigotry of low expectations, as mm. Majid Nawaz calls it. Um, yeah, so it's. It's a yeah. She's she's a very heroic um, individual in the sense that she's she's managed to get herself out of this situation and be an example for others and you know basically show that you know these these values that we have in the West, particularly around freedom of speech and um, you know equality before the law, that. Um, no, these need to be applied to all people. It's not good enough to say, "Oh, you, you people over there, because you're, you know, you have a different culture. You don't, you know, you don't need these principles. These are we won't, you know, um, empire. We won't do the empire thing and impose them on you." Um, and it was actually another thing that occurred to me is how similar it is to um, how we deal with indigenous people in this country in terms of not wanting to remove them from their homes or not not treating them with the same equality before the law as we would treat you know um you know everyone else basically so it's it's a yeah it was if, if very powerful if something's unacceptable it should be unacceptable for yeah, everybody yeah. yeah yeah no um uh thank, thanks for yeah. that because uh, so coming to australia in a couple of weeks you yes. say yeah. and we'll keep definitely keep an eye out for that one um, I've gone much more mainstream, uh, which is I watched uh, Parasite, uh, watched it on the stream, streaming service. This is the um, Korean movie that uh, won a slew of Academy Awards, including uh, Best Picture. And um, it actually took a lot of uh, processing, I think, to, um, to work my way around it. It's, it is different. Um, and uh, the, I, I think it does have its limitations as a film. Um, in in the in the sense that it's it's too long, uh, it's got a sort of a three act structure, and you know the the first act takes way too long. Like the first act plays as as fast as comedy, mm. and um, I was sitting there with my wife watching it, and um, we were sort of going, you know, where, where's this going? You know, what 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 is this movie actually about? I didn't get that, but we watched it in two sessions, so that's that. Yeah, yeah, probably probably more bearable, but you know, sort of. So it's a setup for what then is is going to be the. Tr you know, there's going to be a twist somewhere. You mm. think, you know, where, where's this going to go? And admittedly, the twist is very good. Mm. You know, it's it, it's um, uh, it's not uh quite a horror film, but it's certainly you know based on the you know the macabre. And um, but it takes way too long to get there, and then when it does get there, it com it completely jumps the shark. Um, so, and which which defeats completely defeats this notion, which is what got at the Academy Award that this is some kind of searing expose of the 
of modern capitalism where there's the haves and the have-nots and there's basically just these rich people who all live in fabulous houses and are, you know, as, as, as dumb as dog proverbial and um, uh, as opposed to poor, virtuous uh, grifters uh, living on the fringe of societies. Um, uh, you know, so it, set, it sets up that that is the supposed rationale of the film but then it just... By, by overplaying the elements and just being so silly, it's like, well, what, what kind of film is this meant to be? Is it meant to be a horror story or an allegory or what? I, I, I actually don't think it hangs together. I actually, I, I, I enjoyed it, but I thought, that, so I, I had read a lot about it before. And so there's, there's the rich family and the poor family. Of course, the poor family goes to work for the rich family. Um, and I've seen a lot of commentary online about people either saying, well, you can understand both sides' perspectives or even uh, even um, like I just can't understand the rich family but the poor family um, uh, I can completely understand. When looking at what each family does to each other, I, for the life of me, can't figure out what the rich family did wrong. They were a little bit. They were a little bit rude. In fact, they were a fair bit rude. But they would. They were rude. And if you watch this movie, which I, I actually do recommend, because it is a very good movie. Um. Uh, and and it's. Uh. If you're used to. If you're not used to watching. Um. Uh, many foreign films, particularly Korean films, it'll be really striking, and it's and it's very enjoyable. But um. Uh. But but I just cannot see how you watch that movie and you think like, yeah, the rich people got what was coming to them. <laughs> yeah. I, I, unless you come from this, uh, I think it speaks to a little bit of our culture, which is the dirtbag left culture, which is the pro Bernie Sanders, the po pro Jeremy Corbyn. We just got to, um, uh, you've got to just beat up the rich and it doesn't matter what you say or do just as long as you're sticking it to, to the wealthy. Um, uh, if you come from that culture, this really speaks to this. Might really speak to you, but I just uh, it is a it is a picture of yeah, our time. Yeah, but it's Let's not it it's way. not actually for the dirt bag left. It's for the upper middle class left, which can watch a movie about people who are poorer than the and a the picture dirt, of, and, and to people clarify, who are richer. The dirt bag left are the upper middle class left. The dirt bag left, <laughs> oh, I see, right. the the chapo trap house types, all these um, they are all incredibly highly educated. Yeah, gotcha. Okay, yeah. So um, the, but they're very—they're not rich because they've chosen to go be writers in Brooklyn, and turns out that doesn't give you a lot yeah, of money. So then, yeah, so they're not quite as poor as the people de depicted in this movie. So no, they can imagine what it was like. Okay, no. that makes perfect sense. Yeah, actually, true—not a terrible movie, just not deserving to win the Academy Award. Yeah, but I mean, not a lot of good movies win Academy Awards. So. <laughs> that's, that's true, but that's not the point. Not this one. Thank you very much. Evan. Cool. Uh, for my culture pick this week, I've got, uh, I've listened to the first four episodes of a podcast called The 11th. It is by uh, the ABC, who have seemingly decided they haven't covered the Whitlam dismissal enough. Um, <laughs> finally, uh, get it, they're going to get around to the Whitlam yeah, dismissal. Yeah, yeah they're, they're, they're finally going to dig deep into it. But um, uh, I, I have, a, I must admit, I have enjoyed this podcast quite a bit. I, I do. And the, produ the production quality is quite good. The, the suspenseful music, uh, a lot of it at the moment is, I've got four episodes in, is, is scene setting to, to what eventually occurred. Mm. Um, and um, it talks about things like, uh, I think it overplays a bit of Rupert Murdoch's involvement, talks about how oh. Rupert Murdoch was originally for Whitlam and then he turned against Whitlam and, and he was at dinner parties with the, uh, with the Governor General and, and, and things like that. Oh, that sounds awful. Um, it also talks about a, a character called 
uh, Elizabeth Reid, who was the women's advisor uh, for um, Gough Whitlam and talks about her journey to, to, to that role, how much pressure she was under and her relationship then with the Governor-General. She eventually got asked to give uh, write speeches on women's issues for the Governor-General and she actually reveals that the Governor-General uh, came onto her and made an, a, 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 an approach, uh, if you say, and he, he apparently in conversations uh, described himself as more powerful than the Prime Minister. Um, uh, so a, a lot of uh, new interesting information is revealed in that episode. Uh, it also goes to a lot of scene setting into uh, how the Kimani affair uh, um, and how uh, unique that was at the time to go mm. uh, find government loans that way and and their, you know, Minister Rex Tanner. Or Connor. You know, Rex Connor. Rex Connor, uh, who was, uh, you know, interested in nationalising completely Australia's energy market so they can get more out of it. Um, and he wanted to do it uh, through through that loan and, and that all unravelling. Um, but it also um, goes into how uh, the Attorney General, uh, when they got into government, Lionel Murphy, uh, was so angry at ASIO, it kept going after... Um, you know, he was from the socialist left and he kept... It, ASIO basically, its job at the time was... or its direction at the time was finding communist spies um, and it was pro-US, pro-capitalist system... Um, which they claim led to a lot of blind spots, uh, particularly... Um, uh, yeah, right-wing terrorists. And particularly right-wing terrorists, co- Croatian yeah. uh, separatists that were uh, having their own issues with the Yugoslavs. Uh, they went on to the George Is this presented Street. by John Pilger? Is no. This, no. <laughs> <laughs> is this just a standard left-wing ABC idea of the dismissal? This is just every so conspiracy. At least they mentioned the command. Yeah, they so dropped in every conspiracy it talks theory about, you can ever It talks of. about how he was so mad, you know, AFP raided ASIO. And that was an act not... You see, what, you'll, you, what you don't understand, Evan, is that the Whitlam government was the only government there ever has been in Australia. And so <laughs> yeah. we just got to dig down into every little niche aspect. It's funny, it went on to, to talk about how uh, the US were basically, um, you know, really oh. worried about the Whitlam government oh, and basically God. wanted to end the relationship. Oh, God. Um, what it hasn't mentioned so far, <laughs> I expect this will come in the next few episodes, is the fact that uh, Fraser went on to win the following election yeah. and the election after yeah, that. Yeah, no, no, there, no there doubt they really drilled down mentioned. into the, well, they there actually, never the deep unpopularity of, of the Whitlam government. Or the actual con- constitutional crisis. I mean, yeah. none, none of those things have anything to do with the actual constitutional crisis mm. um, that was taking place in Australia I at suspect the time. they're playing to a very loyal base, as we were discussing oh, before. Oh, boy. Another great use of taxpayers' <laughs> funds. Are mis- you going to go to the that end? That sounds miserable. I, I will. I'll report back. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> you don't um, have to. <laughs> <laughs> um, he was, yeah, I, I, and there's plenty of people like, you know, Bob Hawke, of course, thought that you know, Whitlam was terrible and deserved what he got. But anyway, that's, that's, <laughs> I'm probably yeah. verbaling him a little bit there but anyway you have been listening to looking forward which is of course a product of the institute of public affairs if you're not already a member please do go to ipa.org.au and see how you can join or donate see how you can download some of our wonderful research and view our digital products i'd like to say a big thank you today to our panelists dr chris berg thank you scott dara mcdonald great to be here evan mulholland thanks for having me uh and also i'd like to thank josh in the studio uh i'm scott hargraves we'll be back with more looking forward next week